Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library, and today I'd like to introduce you to a historic neighborhood that has been largely forgotten in our community. Dutch Town was a short-lived phenomenon that may have been Charleston's first ethnic neighborhood. It emerged in the late 1750s, and its growth was fueled by the arrival of large numbers of German immigrants in the years leading up to the American Revolution. Unlike many other ethnic neighborhoods, the clustering of these German immigrants into an urban enclave was not motivated by issues of prejudice or segregation. Rather, the birth of Dutchtown in mid-18th century Charleston was an interesting response to a specific set of circumstances and real estate opportunities that existed at that moment. As those circumstances changed, however, and its German denizens moved on to greener pastures, Dutchtown's identity faded into obscurity more than two centuries ago. Before we burrow too deeply into the history of Charleston's Dutchtown, we need to correctly identify the people who inspired the name of this long-forgotten neighborhood. Despite the name, Dutchtown was not a neighborhood full of Dutch immigrants from the Netherlands. The Dutch in this town refers instead to German-speaking settlers from the electorate of the Palatinate in the southwest area of modern Germany who came to South Carolina in large numbers around the middle of the 18th century. The German word for German is Deutsch, which English-speaking American colonists incorrectly anglicized as Dutch. There were certainly legitimate Dutch settlers in early South Carolina, of course, but the inhabitants of Charleston's Dutch town were every bit as German as the more famous Pennsylvania Dutch, who were, of course, really Deutsch. The story of Dutchtown begins in the middle of the 18th century, but I'd like to begin our tour of the neighborhood in the 1670s. Why? Because the physical location of Dutchtown is rooted in a series of mathematical errors made long before the first Germans arrived in South Carolina. Around the year 1672, a team of surveyors laid out the town we call Charleston on the peninsula between the Ashley and Cooper Rivers. Their hand-drawn plan, which included a grid of streets oriented roughly on east-west and north-south axes and more than 300 half-acre lots, became known as the Grand Model of the town. You'll find illustrations of the Grand Model of Charleston in a number of history books, and anyone interested in studying the physical development of the town needs to be intimately familiar with the Grand Model. As a map of the early town, however, the grand model of Charleston wasn't perfect. In fact, it was a terribly flawed document. It turns out that the surveyors who drew the grand model on paper in the early 1670s made some significant errors in their field work. That is, when they laid out the streets and lots on the ground with stakes and surveyors' chains, they made some serious mathematical mistakes. I'll save the details of that story for a later program. But back to Dutchtown. Because Charleston grew slowly in its early years, it wasn't until the 1720s that people began to realize that some of the streets and lots were not in the right place. Things started out all right on the east side of town against the Cooper River waterfront, but the surveying errors became more pronounced as one moved north and west towards the Ashley River waterfront. 
Throughout the 1730s, the South Carolina legislature discussed methods of rectifying these problems, but no actions were taken until the mid-1740s. Meanwhile, the earliest German Palatine immigrants arrived in South Carolina in 1732 and throughout the rest of the 1730s. Most of them moved inland to claim land around the newly created townships, but a small portion remained in Charleston. The migration of Germans was curtailed at the end of the 1730s, however, by the outbreak of a new war between Britain and Spain that became known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. In response to the renewed threat of Spanish invasion, the South Carolina legislature commenced building new fortifications around Charleston. Between the late 1730s and the late 1740s, new walls, moats, and bastions appeared on the urban landscape. At first, the legislature focused on expanding the fortifications on the south and east sides of the town, at White Point and along the Cooper River waterfront. But eventually, the government realized that they had left the north and west parts of the town completely open to attack. In the mid-1740s, engineers and laborers corrected this oversight by creating an earthen wall and moat nearly a half mile in length and punctuated with at least three bastions to protect Charleston's sparsely populated northwest frontier. At the same time as this large construction project, South Carolina's Surveyor General, George Hunter, resurveyed all of the property west of Meeting Street and north of Queen Street, which at that time was almost entirely vacant. In June of 1746, Hunter completed his plat of resurvey, as he called it, that served as the new version of the grand model for the northwest portion of the town. The Surveyor General's original plat, created in 1746, does not survive, but the South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia holds a true copy made in the 1820s by the State Surveyor General Daniel H. Tillingest. So how is this information relevant to the story of Dutchtown? Well, let me explain. The neighborhood called Dutchtown was comprised of eight half-acre lots in the northwest corner of Colonial Charleston. The lots numbered 254 through 261. Now, if you open a copy of the grand model of the town, as created in the 1670s, and look for those lot numbers, you will find that they are not contiguous and don't resemble a neighborhood. Rather, the lot numbers that comprised Dutchtown only make sense as a continuous block of lots when you look at George Hunter's 1746 resurvey of that neighborhood. As I mentioned a moment ago, at the time of George Hunter's resurveying and the fortification construction in the mid-1740s, the northwestern part of urban Charleston was, in fact, pretty rural-looking. King Street certainly existed because it was the only road in and out of the town, but Archdale Street and the other streets in that neighborhood existed only on paper. In the wake of George Hunter's resurveying, however, the streets and lots were laid out anew and were ready for development. We're talking about a couple of dozen acres that were owned by a handful of investors. James Allen, for example, owned four contiguous grand model lots between King and Archdale Streets, numbered 254, 255, 260, and 261. Immediately north of Mr. Allen's lots 
Richard Beresford owned four contiguous lots between King and Archdale Streets, numbered 256, 257, 258, and 259. To the north of Mr. Beresford, there were a few other lots, but they were either partially or totally obscured by the line of fortifications constructed in 1745. Similarly, there was some vacant land to the west of Archdale Street, but there was also a public powder magazine, a workhouse, a poorhouse, a public burying ground, and the southwestward continuation of the new fortifications. That area, around what is now Magazine Street, would be developed later, after the American Revolution, so we'll ignore it for the time being. In early January 1759, a group of eight men representing the nucleus of Charleston's first German Lutheran congregation purchased a vacant lot from James Allen. More specifically, they purchased lot number 255, which, according to George Hunter's 1746 plat of resurvey, measured 97 feet along the east side of Archdale Street and 232 feet deep. To facilitate access to this property, both James Allen, who still owned the adjacent lots, and his new German neighbors sacrificed a few feet of their respective lots to create an alley that ran perpendicular to Archdale and King Street. At first, Mr. Allen called this new pathway Allen Street, but that name wasn't widely used. As soon as the Germans began building their wooden church on the south side of the new alley, most people in Charleston began calling it Dutch Church Alley, or, as one newspaper notice described it in 1767, the lane leading out of King Street to the Dutch Church. The conveyance of lot number 255 to a group of German investors in January 1759 marks the beginning, we might even say the cornerstone, of Dutchtown. Here, a group of German immigrants pooled their money and put down permanent roots on behalf of their fledgling community. As individuals, however, the vast majority of the Deutsch-speaking newcomers could not afford to purchase property or build their own houses. For a generation or two after their arrival, most of them had to live and work in rented property until they could generate the capital and the credit needed to settle in a more permanent situation. Meanwhile, as more German Palatines sailed into the port of Charleston in the 1760s, the town grew crowded and the supply of affordable housing rapidly diminished. Barracks built by the provincial government to house British soldiers became the first temporary shelter for hundreds of new arrivals. Charleston needed some new housing stock, and real estate speculators like James Allen and Richard Bereford were quick to seize this market opportunity. I don't know of any surviving record in which men like James Allen and Richard Bareford expressed their intentions to generate profits by building cheap rental tenements for incoming Germans, but that's precisely what they did. By the time St. John's Lutheran Church was completed in the early 1760s, extant property records show that Mr. Allen and Mr. Bareford were subdividing their vacant lands near the new church. More specifically, James Allen subdivided his adjacent lots, numbered 254, 260, and 261, into smaller parcels that he leased and sold to a number of individuals. Similarly, Richard Bareford, who owned the property on the north side of James Allen, divided his four lots, numbered 256 through 259, into 30 smaller lots on either side of a new, narrow street he called 
Bearford Street, which is not to be confused with Bearford Alley, which is now part of Chalmers Street. The 1759 conveyance of Lot 255 from James Allen to the trustees of the German Lutheran Church might have been the spark that fueled the growth of Dutchtown, but the neighborhood didn't appear overnight. It took time to clear the land, divide the lots, lay out the streets, and erect homes and shops. In fact, the earliest use of the name Dutchtown that I've been able to find is from late June 1770, when a woman named Margaret McIntyre offered to teach sewing and knitting at her house, quote, in Dutchtown, opposite Dr. Schwentz, end quote, in King Street. I'm sure the name was in use locally for some time before 1770, but I haven't yet finished the tedious process of trolling through surviving documents in search of an earlier reference. From the beginning, most of the subdivided building lots in Dutchtown were quite small. A few generously-sized corner lots were large enough to attract investors who built brick buildings, but the vast majority of the new dwellings that appeared in the neighborhood were modest, one-and-a-half-story wooden tenements built on low brick foundations. How do we know this? Because a number of real estate advertisements in the Charleston newspapers of the 1760s through the 1770s actually described the buildings available for sale and for rent in the area between King and Archdale Streets. Similarly, there are deeds of sales and lease agreements recorded at the Office of the Register of Mean Conveyance that provide valuable descriptions. In June of 1760, for example, the widow Elizabeth Collis leased a small vacant lot on the west side of King Street, just a bit south of the new Dutch Church Alley, to George Gardner for £10 South Carolina currency per year for seven years. In exchange for this very low rent, Gardner promised to build and maintain one wooden tenement measuring 15 feet on King Street and 30 feet deep, one story high on a brick foundation with a Dutch roof. The interior was to measure eight feet from floor to ceiling and seven and a half feet from the eaves of the roof to the peak of the roof. The term Dutch roof was commonly used in colonial America to describe what builders would now call a gambrel roof. That is, a sort of pentagonal-shaped roof profile rather than triangular profile, which provides extra headroom below the rafters and turns the attic into usable living space. Similarly, in February 1771 and October 1772, an agent for Richard Bereford advertised to lease several small wooden buildings in Dutchtown, all featuring similar proportions and Dutch roofs, just like the house George Gardner was required to build in 1760. From these advertisements and others from that era, we learn that German folks are indeed living in Dutchtown, and sometimes multiple families are sharing cramped quarters. Advertisements for goods and services tell us that this neighborhood was inhabited by bakers, blacksmiths, washers, coopers, and wheelwrights, among other tradesmen and women. In short, Charleston's Dutchtown, in the decade before the American Revolution, was a modest, bustling, working-class, immigrant neighborhood just within the limits of the town. Dutchtown continued to thrive in the 1780s and 1790s, but the neighborhood was definitely changing. Many of the German families who had settled in the neighborhood in its earliest days were moving away. As immigrants became established and prospered, 
they acquired the capital and credit necessary to own their own property and to build larger houses elsewhere in town. The new neighborhood of Harleston, just northwest of Dutchtown, and the new boroughs just north of the city limits, offered fresh opportunities for second- and third-generation families who could afford to move up in the world. You can get a good sense of the physical context of Dutchtown by looking at a map called The Ichnography of Charleston, which was published in 1790 by the Phoenix Fire Insurance Company of London. This valuable map, which was based on surveys made in 1788, tells us that Dutch Church Alley, adjacent to St. John's Lutheran Church, was only 13 feet wide, while Bereford Street was 25 feet wide. Those two short streets running east-west between Archdale and King Streets are the only streets in Dutchtown at that time. A very similar map, published in 1802 within Negrin's New Charleston Directory, informs us that the old Dutch Church Alley had been rechristened as Clifford Street. It's unclear exactly when that change took place, but it occurred sometime in the 1790s after Mr. John Clifford became the dominant landlord at the southwest corner of King Street and the narrow lane leading to the German church. Furthermore, Negrin's 1802 map includes two additional streets at the northern edge of Dutchtown. Approximately 130 feet north of Bereford Street, you'll find Swinton's Lane, a narrow thoroughfare cut through the property of Mr. Hugh Swinton, who acquired the lots numbered 262 and 263 on George Hunter's 1746 plat of resurvey. Approximately 150 feet north of Swinton Lane is another new street called Parsonage Lane. Actually, Parsonage Lane existed long before 1802, but for many years it was simply a dirt footpath leading from King Street to the Parsonage of St. Philip's Parish. At any rate, in 1802, we can imagine that the locals extended the name Dutchtown to encompass everything from the south side of Clifford Street to the new houses and shops popping up around Swinton's Lane and perhaps even the south side of Parsonage Lane. As the 18th century drew to a close, Dutchtown became less Deutsch, but it continued to be a modest, working-class neighborhood inhabited by people on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. In the South Carolina Weekly Gazette of 16 August 1783, for example, one Mrs. Harvey advertised that she had removed her sewing business, quote, to Dutchtown, opposite the Jews' synagogue, end quote. In the Charleston Morning Post of 9 November 1786, Anthony Jankowski advertised to sell two tenements in Dutchtown, one of which included an upper room, quote, which is the synagogue for the Portuguese Jews' congregation, end quote. Similarly, the first Irish Catholic congregation in Charleston worshipped briefly, perhaps only a few months, in a rented building in Dutchtown. Both of these congregations, coincidentally, moved to more permanent quarters on Hazel Street before the end of the 1780s. By the late 1790s, Dutchtown was quietly fading away. In Charleston City Gazette in October 1799, for example, John O'Kelly announced the opening of his evening school at, quote, number 19, Bareford Street, formerly called Dutchtown, end quote. In the ensuing years, the number of references to Dutchtown in surviving documents declined rapidly. 
Having searched through property records and historic newspapers, the latest reference to Dutchtown that I've found appeared in the Charleston Investigator on May 3, 1813, when the celebrated Jewish intellectual Isaac Harvey informed the public that he had, quote, moved his school to that very pleasant and central location, number 17, Bareford Street, commonly called Dutchtown, a few doors from the corner of King Street, end quote. Among the earliest surviving records of free persons of color paying the annual capitation tax in Charleston, which are tentatively dated somewhere in the range of 1811 to 1817, there appears one Rose Robillon residing in Dutchtown. So it appears that by the end of the 18-teens, the name Dutchtown had gradually disappeared from the Charleston lexicon. In fact, an eyewitness from that era The physician and amateur historian John Sheckett said exactly that. In his Medical and Philosophical Essays, published in Charleston in 1819, Dr. Sheckett correctly noted that the northwest fringes of the town were resurveyed in the 1740s and subsequently developed. Quote, The Germans, said Sheckett, who had mostly located themselves in that section of the suburbs, comprehended within the limits west of King Street, from Clifford's Alley to Parsonage Lane, formerly called Dutchtown, made considerable improvements therein. End quote. Following the demise of the name Dutchtown, the neighborhood went through several cycles of growth and decay. In 1818, the German American congregation at St. John's Lutheran Church dedicated their new brick chapel and began to dismantle the old one. After the old building came down, the city of Charleston cleared away some additional wooden structures and widened Clifford Street to its present dimensions in 1819. The following year, the city began widening Parsonage Lane and incorporated it into Market Street. On the 27th of April, 1838, a massive fire burned all of Swinton's Lane and moved southwestwardly to Ansonboro. In the aftermath of the fire, the city of Charleston widened parts of King Street and renamed the improved Swinton's Lane as Princess Street. The most notorious change in the neighborhood came in the early years of the 20th century, when the short block of Bareford Street became known as the heart of Charleston's red light district. Everyone seemed to know that brothels and other houses of ill repute dominated the street, but the city did little to address the issues. Only after U.S. military leaders applied political pressure in 1941 did city council finally evict vice and immorality from Bareford Street. In March of 1942, the remaining people who owned property along the street then petitioned city council for permission to change its name. Bareford Street was tainted by the past, they said, and they wanted a new name that would be free of social stigma. City council agreed and started brainstorming about a new moniker for the street. Casting an eye around council chambers in City Hall, a member of council cited a plaster bust of Robert Fulton, of steamship fame, and suggested the name Fulton Street. After a brief debate, the motion was adopted, and that was the end of Richard Bareford's legacy. 
In short, Dutchtown was a small neighborhood, approximately four to six acres in size, that emerged in the 1760s as German immigrants flowed into Charleston and settled within the shadow of their Lutheran church. After the American Revolution, the neighborhood became increasingly diverse as new populations moved in and the original German inhabitants moved onward and upward. The name Dutchtown gradually lost its meaning in the early years of the 19th century, and by 1819, it ceased to be an ethnically distinctive neighborhood. During this span of 50-odd years, Dutchtown was a respectable but modest working-class community that served as a springboard for many valuable South Carolina families of diverse creeds and colors. Many years later, the neighborhood went downhill, so to speak. But that's no reflection on the legacy of Dutchtown. In fact, saying that Dutchtown was once the center of vice in early 20th century Charleston is kind of like saying Broadway musicals are the cultural highlight of New Amsterdam. What I'm trying to say is this. Don't be tempted to use an 18th century name to describe the jazz age evils of Barefoot Street. The original small homes and narrow lanes that once defined Dutchtown are long gone, but it's still a charming part of Charleston that hundreds of tourists see every day. Now that you know the story of the neighborhood, perhaps you'll be inclined to take a stroll around Dutchtown and see some familiar sights through a new historical lens. That is what the Charleston Time Machine is all about. Kevin Crothers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. I'll be back on the air next week with more adventures in Lowcountry history. If you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.